So Luke 17, and we're going to begin in verse 20. I'm just going to read this first couple of paragraphs, and then I'll be working through the text as we go along this morning. So Luke 17, verse 20. Once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observations, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within or among you. Then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. Men will tell you, there he is or here he is. Do not go running after them, for the Son of Man in his day will be like lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first, he must suffer many things. And be rejected by this generation. Topic of our discussion this morning is the second coming of Christ. And the one question that I think I would put out to you this morning in light of the topic of Christ's return is simply this. Are you ready? Are you ready for the return of Christ? Now, I understand that such a discussion can prompt a variety of responses. When you think about what Jesus Christ promised, it's an awful lot like how people responded to the promise of his resurrection. There was ridicule, there was cynicism, there was doubt, there was fear, and there was hope. And as we come to a discussion about this second coming of Christ as it is described in this text, I think we can expect a variety of responses that are prompted in the hearts of people that listen. One is cynicism. It's kind of like, come on, like you believe that stuff? Because it sounds like a fairy tale to some. The book of 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 3 says that many will say, where is the promise of his coming? I mean, it's been 2,000 years. Where is his, why hasn't he returned yet? The second response is fear. I remember this response as a child. I grew up under a very powerful preaching pastor and when he preached on the second coming it it kind of shook my life I remember being seven eight years old and I would I would hear a sermon on the second coming of Jesus and are you ready and I was like like wow like I think (laughs) I think I am at that age I was like I hope I am I remember being at home after hearing one of those sermons a couple days later get home from school and Get off the bus, run in the house. First word out of a child's mouth when they hit the door coming off the bus is what? Mom. Food. Okay. (laughs) Second word. First one for me was mom. If it was like a couple days after one of those sermons, I'm like, mom. And you don't get a response. And they're like, sheer terror. (laughs) Mom. Mom. It's like, what? It's like nothing. really glad to see you (laughs) right because I was just like oh man it's so good to see you (laughs) Uh, another response is speculation about the timing based on everything under the sun throughout church history that has been the case the church I grew up in Doug you remember E. Robert Jordan would Doug and I grew up in the same church he would do current events I don't tell you everything in the newspaper got turned into something that was assuring us that the coming of Christ was, it, 
And there tends to be a lot of speculation about when Christ is coming. Many of us on this topic have gotten our beliefs from what we've heard as opposed to our personal reading of the Word of God, which is always a dangerous place to be. And so we live in a world where there is a, a large group of people that make a lot of money writing books about the signs of the times. It is probably, I would guess, undoubtedly the most popular realm of Christian writing and the most profitable realm of Christian writing. I remember uh, during the uh, desert Operation Desert Storm, that was the first one, right, in the 90s. I remember John Walford writing a book called Oil, Armageddon, and the Middle East. Okay, just every time, and this is historically true, this has happened. There is a tendency to want to hang on to individual events and make them the big picture when they're really small parts of a very big picture. So there's a lot of speculation. Then the last response, which I think is the one that Christ wants us to have to the promise of his coming, is a solid hope. A solid expectation that I'd like to think of in terms of a commercial I remember seeing when I was a kid. It was a commercial about Heinz ketchup. Remember that commercial? And it's like waiting, waiting, waiting. And you just learned if you stick your knife in there and open it up, break the air bubble, the airlock, it just pours out. All right, and the commercial used to have a jingle with it called, I'm not going to sing it, I was tempted. But I won't. It's, it was anticipation. It's making me wait. It's keeping me waiting. All right, it was a jingle that they had for Heinz ketchup. That was over food, okay, which gets some people excited. This text is telling us that the coming of Christ should show, so deeply affect longing believers. And you notice that as I read. Jesus said, there will come a day when you will long for the coming of the Son of Man. When you will crave and desire and want to see that glorious day, which in Scripture is described as the blessed hope of believers. What's your response? This morning. As we come into the realm of this topic, and I promise you, I'm not going to confuse you. I'm not going to give you charts. I'm not going to do all that stuff. I'm just going to go with what the text says this morning and encourage you, follow along, draw conclusions from what God is saying, test everything I'm saying according to what this text says, and then give God the response that he puts on your heart this morning. So as we move through it, I, I first want to address this idea of the way Christ explains his coming in this passage of scripture. The Pharisees have come and they said, when is the kingdom of God going to come? And then you have to start to say to yourself, what did the Pharisees mean when they asked the question, when is the kingdom of God coming? What were they talking about? As they referenced this concept, which seems that they assumed Jesus would know what they mean when they say the kingdom of God. And we know the disciples who were Jewish believers in Jesus in Acts chapter 1, after the resurrection, what do they say? Acts 1, 6, are you now, prior to the ascension, are you now going to restore what? The kingdom of God, and then they localize it, which I think is where they go wrong. Are you now going to restore the kingdom of God to Israel? When Jesus, all through his ministry, has talked about what? A larger plan that encompasses a good news that is for people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And so he says to them in, chat, in verse 8 of Acts 1, he says, I'm not going to tell you the time, that's up to my Father. But the Spirit of God is going to come upon you, and he is going to empower you to be a witness to people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. 
So this concept of the kingdom of God starts to move from a national geopolitical region to a global picture of the work of God on the globe in which God has placed us. So what is the kingdom of God? at, At a very basic level, let me say this. It is the rule or reign of a sovereign king. It is the exercise of dominion, of authority, of power. And it is the ability to right all wrongs and to bring justice when it is in the hands of a benevolent dictator. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, gives us something very fascinating that all of us have prayed, but very few of us have thought of in relationship to this topic. The kingdom of God related to the coming of Christ. Here's what he taught us. He said, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. What comes next? Thy kingdom come. What did Jesus teach his disciples to do? To long for the coming of the kingdom of the Son of Man. He said to them, when you pray, when you bow your head, express to your Father in heaven a desire to see the rule of his Son where you live. What does he say next? Thy will be done on earth as it is where? In heaven. How is God's will done in heaven? Flipshod? Half-heartedly? No, it is done perfectly and completely. And what God is saying to his disciples is, one day my son will come, and when he comes, all that is wrong will be made right. And we will have the pleasure of living in his awesome and glorious and wonderful and beautiful presence. And Jesus' discussion about the kingdom of God ties directly in his words. As he answers the the Pharisees, and he's on to what they're asking. But when he talks about it, you're going to see through this text a number of times this phrase, the son of man. That's how Jesus is going to describe the kingdom of God term that he uses here. So follow along with me. Verse 22. Just look real quick. Then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see the days of the son of man. Verse 24. For the son of man in his day. Verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. You start to notice something. There's a theme emerging here. Verse 30. It will be just like this on the day that the Son of Man is revealed, which now ties to a text in Titus chapter 2. The blessed hope of believers is the revealing of the Son of Man. Chapter 18 and verse 8 where we'll end this morning. Jesus says, however, when the Son of Man comes... Will he find thee faith on the earth? Now, so if you find this extended discussion about the return of Christ, the kingdom of God, that is now redefined as the coming of the Son of Man, which is a direct reference to Jesus from the book of Daniel. I'm going to just read this to you. Daniel, in Daniel 7, verse 13, I'll come to this text at the end. He says this. He says, in my vision... I saw one like the Son of Man coming. Now, it's, it's a vision where, where Daniel is in deep turmoil and God is giving him revelation about the future. And he sees one coming who has a unique authority and who is given a unique, unending kingdom. Would you not love that? 
a righteous kingdom that cannot be shaken, that can never be overthrown. That's the promise that is given in relationship to the Son of Man. So when the Pharisees say, when is this thing about the kingdom of God coming? Jesus ties it to the return of the Son of Man, and then Jesus is going to take a bold step. Remember what he says to Peter at one point? He says, Peter, in Matthew 16, verse 16, he says, Peter, who do you say that the Son of Man is? Who is he? You know what Peter says? You are the Christ. The son of the living God. And then you see the connection. This son of God and son of man is the one that we long to see come who is the one who inherits an eternal throne after having dealt with the consequences of our rebellion and sin. And if he's done that for you, what will it do? It will create in your heart a longing for the day of the son of man. You've probably heard the phrase where people say, every man has his day. Now, what is this text causing us to look for? It is causing us to look for a day, the day of Christ. And that is, that is and should be the longing of every Christian, not hope in politics, not hope in an election that took place this week that may or may not have gone the direction you wanted it to go. And you get all excited and confident and hopeful because something temporary changed and it's going to change again. And we have a tendency to grab onto things that are light in weight compared to Christ. This text calls us to draw our attention to the Son of Man. And we're going to just kind of work our way through this and see how it accomplishes that task. And Jesus says in verse 21, verse 21, he says, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observations. That is, the Pharisees had right in front of them who? The Son of Man. And they saw him do works, miracles, miraculous activity that when earlier in the book, John the Baptist said, are you the Christ or are we looking for someone else? What did Jesus say? The lame walk, the blind see, the dead are raised. He goes through a list of miracles that are tied to the coming of the Son of Man. And he says, just tell John the Baptist that's what's happening because John the Baptist, being a shrewd man of the word of God, will know that that is evidence of the presence of the Son of Man. He'll see it. Here's my question for you. Did the Pharisees see it? You get the text then? Jesus says you won't get the kingdom of God by your careful scrutiny and observation because what were they doing with Jesus? They were picking him apart. They were putting him under a microscope with careful observation. Could they see who Jesus was? The answer is they clearly, completely missed who Jesus was. The kingdom of God, the coming of Christ, also will not come with our careful observation on our timetable and calendar. It will come according to the calendar of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So, in verse 21, Jesus says, let me just get myself my bearing here. Verse 21b, here's what it says. Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, meaning people will have a tendency to miss it as they're missing this one. He says, because the kingdom of God is within you or among you. It's in your midst. It's right there. 
And they were seeing activities that were indicative of the fact that the king was present, acting in a kingly way, but in a limited way. All right. So in the miracles of Christ, what do you see? You see an inbreaking of the kingdom. You see a bit of a, an awakening or an evidencing of the kingdom of God, but not the fullness of the kingdom of God. Why is that? Okay, we'll see in a few minutes that it's because the coming of the Son of Man is a staged coming, meaning it comes in two stages, the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ that he's going to address here. Okay, one for a particular purpose, one for a second purpose, both of them related and tied to one King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Okay, so then let's look at what this text reveals to us in regards to the facts about the kingdom of God. First thought is this, verse 22 and 23. Then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days. And I think it's fascinating. You will long to see just one of the days of the coming of the Son of Man. But you will not see it. Men will say to you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running after them. Now, here's what I want to show you. Okay, the first thought is this. There is, in regards to the coming of Christ and the kingdom of God, there is a delay in that coming. Now, you can go to the book of 2 Peter and read very carefully and very clearly that the reason for that delay is the salvation of people who do not yet know the Savior. God's patience is expressed in that delay. God's heart for the lost is expressed in that delay. Now, that delay has an effect on us, doesn't it? If you know Christ and you have a longing to see justice and righteousness, in fact, I would argue this. I would argue that anyone living in a broken world, which is all of us, who experiences the sinful distortion of the world in which we live, in their heart has a longing for something. Some people know it's Jesus. Some people aren't sure what it is. But it, it, it is true, isn't it? That, that many people will turn on their TV and hear about something horrific that is happening somewhere in the world. And what happens? In their heart, they're longing for something, for someone who can exercise authority over all of the perversion and distortion that is present in their sphere of influence in their world. And they watch it and their heart breaks. Okay, you know what it is? That heart breaking is an acknowledgement that things aren't the way they should be. That there is a brokenness in this world. And every person, if you're being honest this morning, you know what it is to watch a newscast, to hear someone share a story with you, and your heart is shattered, broken. And you may weep tears because you can't believe the things that people will do. You can't believe how broken and devastating the world that you live in is. Breaks your heart. And you long. That's what Jesus is saying to his disciples. There will come a day when things are so difficult that you will long to see the Son of Man. So in that delay, there grows within our hearts a longing. But it also creates something else. And this is found in verse 23. He says, men will tell you, there he is or here he is. And what does Jesus say? Don't go running after them. Folks, can I tell you this? And this is just right from Scripture in this text. If someone says to you, he came and you missed it. He's, there he is. Or there he is. Or, or here he is. What does Jesus say? Don't listen to him. And what does he do next? Notice what he does in the next verse. He says, do not go after them. 
because God and only God controls the timing of the return of the Son of Man. All of that calendar is under the control of the ultimate sovereign Savior and Lord. So here's what we're told. When people say, hey, I think Jesus is going to come in this time frame, or I think he's going to come in this time frame. What is Jesus saying? Don't listen to him. Okay? I don't care how many books people write about when it's going to be. Here's what Jesus said. Only the Father knows the timing of the Son of Man's return, Acts chapter, eight, Acts chapter 1, 8 through 11. Okay? So anytime somebody says, well, it's this, it's then, it's here, it's there, just block it out. Second thought that emerges from the text is the description of Christ's return. Verse 24 down to verse 27. And I want you to notice how this ties together with a conjunction. All right, remember from English class, conjunction, conjunction, what's your function? Okay, you remember this? So verse 24, okay? Don't go running after them. Don't exhaust yourself trying to find hope in false places. That's the world I live in. People get all excited about this political candidate or that political candidate. Who's going to be president next? And I hope this person's not president next. Don't go running after all that stuff, trying to find what you can only find in Jesus. He's so clear. And then he says, for the Son of Man, and I just this is my favorite phrase of the description of the return of Christ, in his day, when he comes to fulfill all in totality of his promises, in that day, Here's what it will be like. Those people say, well, how do I know he came? Jesus tells you. He says, it will be like lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from where to where? One end to the other. What is that in uh, geographical terms? From east to west and from north to south, which is to say what? When he comes, no one will have to tell you that he's here. Okay, if it's lightning that lights up the sky from east to west, and that's the description that Jesus gives of his coming, which inspires his people with hope that the kingdom is here, that injustice is about to be righted. And folks, listen, when protesters say no justice, no peace, they are absolutely correct. They are absolutely correct. You and I live in a world that is troubled by injustice of all kinds, of heartbreaking kinds. When Jesus comes... There is justice, and when there is justice, there is peace. But until you have a, an authoritative and powerful, all-powerful and all-knowing leader, it can't happen. So don't place your hopes in the temporal things of politics. Trust in him. The description of his return then is fivefold in this text. I'm just going to list these quickly for you. What is it like? Number one, it is global in impact. East is from the West. I've never been at a fireworks show and, had, and, and said to someone, hey, did the fireworks start yet? Yeah. Right? Why? Because when it starts, it's pretty clear. No one's ever kind of elbowed me and, hey, be quiet, the fireworks have started. All right, you know it. When Christ comes, nobody's going to have to say, he finally came. No, everyone will know that he is there. Oh, glorious day. Prompts for longing in a world of injustice. Secondly, verses 26 through 29. We'll come back to verse 25 in a moment. Jesus gives two illustrations from biblical history of two of the most devastating and tragic events listed 
in the Old Testament. Here's what he says. He says, just as it was in the days of Noah. So when people say, well, what's the sign of Christ coming? This is what Jesus says is the sign of his return. And what is it? People will be, or people then were doing what? They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark. And I said, well, that's not very fascinating. What was it? And life was good. Everything was good. You know, we don't need God. Now, I believe there were other things going on, but it's fascinating to me that the thing that Jesus pulls out in this context, when there are a lot of other things he could address about the rebellion of man against God, what really is at issue is people were living like God did not exist. Which means what? It means that the average person that you know who does not acknowledge Christ, living in apathy, living in uh, relative peace, living in a relative state of, hey, life's good, is living in the way that Jesus' people will be at the time of his return. I believe along with other attendant things from the days of Noah. But notice also he goes to the days of Lot. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, and from what I observed, the average person out in the world knows that when you say Sodom and Gomorrah, when America was established, nobody chose Sodom as the name for a town. Or Gomorrah, to my, the best of my recollection. There's a reason for that. Because Sodom and Gomorrah had notoriety because of a sexual perversion that had entered into the culture. A disregard for marriage and an approval of lifestyles that were utterly contemptible to God. And it ultimately brought about the destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. But what does Jesus say? Listen to what he says. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. And that is a sobering passage of Scripture. So how does Jesus describe his return? Well, I think in these verses, Jesus describes his return as abrupt, as sudden. Can I use the word unexpected? Not unknown, but unexpected. Normal everyday life is happening with an apathy and a carelessness for the things of God. It is fascinating to me that in both cases of the days of Noah and the days of Lot, that the prevailing sinful tendency was a moral laxity in terms of sexuality. And I started thinking about that. And I don't know the answer to this question, but I wonder if there has ever been a day in which the disregard for moral absolutes has ever been as strong as it is today as it was in the days of Noah, as it was in the days of Lot. The underlying issue was a complete disregard for God, and we've got everything under control. The day that God takes his people out, what happens? Judgment falls. Are you ready? Verse 30 and 31. It will be just like that 
on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. And you may, you may think to yourself, well, if I'm not ready, is it really a big consequence? I mean, when Jesus comes, I can turn to him. I think this text flies in the face of that logic. Because what that logic really is saying is I'm going to disregard God for the duration of my life. But when the end comes, I'll love God. And that is a fatal conclusion. Because what it assumes is circumstances will change my life. Folks, from 9-11, what did we learn? Circumstances change people's lives temporarily. Churches were flooded. I'm sure the same thing is probably true of Pearl Harbor Day. I'm sure it's the same. I'm sure it's been the same throughout church history. If you assume that you will turn to God in a real way when it finally comes, this text speaks for you this morning. Verse 31, on that day, no one who is on the roof of his house with his goods inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. And then this stunning statement from the previous text, remember Lot's wife. Why? Why remember Lot's wife? It's kind of like this with Lot's wife. She was called to leave Sodom and Gomorrah. She literally, Lot literally had to use a pry bar to get her out, and the angels had to use a pry bar to get Lot out. And they were told one thing. Declare your allegiance to God by not looking back. Do that. And as Lot, grabbing the hand of his wife, flees from the city that is about to come out of the judgment of God, what happens? Lot's wife, unnamed, could not bear the thought of leaving the city of man to flee to the city of God. And it led to her destruction. And then Jesus says this. He says, for whoever will save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will find it. And that is the biggest step of faith you will ever take. When you say, I am letting go, God will say, I am holding on. And when you say, I won't let go, God will not force your hand. When the Son of Man comes, it will be an abrupt coming, unexpected. It will be inescapable in this sense that in Noah's day and in the days of Lot, judgment fell where God had promised. At some point along the calendar of God's justice, it fell. Verse 34. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together and one will be taken and the other left. And the way I want to describe this is this. The return of Christ, and I want you to know I'm not dealing with timing. I'm dealing with the return of Christ that he is speaking about. The return of Christ does this. It takes believers out of a place of brokenness and injustice and moves them into his presence. That is what the coming of Christ aims to do. To deliver his people from the city of man. And to bring them in the presence of the city of God.
If you read through the book of Revelation with that paradigm in mind, you're going to find so much awesome stuff starts to happen. What is it about? It's like the Exodus, but it's a new Exodus where God brings his people out of bondage and brings them into a place of joy and light and hope. And he sends them a deliverer to do that, Moses. And now the Son of Man is the ultimate Moses who comes to do what? To deliver his people from the bondage of sin, who has the power of God with him and for him and for their benefit. And his aim in this text is to take his people from a place of darkness where there's brokenness, where they, in the words of Jesus, long to see the day. Folks, I hope if you love the appearing of Christ, if it is for you, according to Titus 2.13, the blessed hope, if that is what ignites your heart to see the face of Christ, then you can live with this longing, knowing that all of the injustice that, that is destroying the world around you, that is devastating lives around you, one day every bit of it will be made right. It's going to change your life. And then Jesus gives a cryptic statement at the end of this, doesn't he? He says, the disciples say, where, Lord? He replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures gather. You've had this experience, haven't you? Driving down the road, you see some turkey buzzards. They're vultures. They're flying around. What does that tell you? And I drive by in that, I'm looking for the dead body. Carcass. Okay? And so what is Jesus saying? There's, in this devastating picture, there's hope for us. If you know Christ. Now, here's what's, fascinating about this bringing believers into his presence. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, it's described as we who are still alive will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Isn't that beautiful? I know what some of you are thinking. Sounds like a fairy tale. Well, so did the resurrection of Christ. And it happened. And one day he's coming and that will be for us a glorious day. Here's the question I want to ask you this morning. In the meantime, how do I live? In the meantime, as I await this glorious, inescapable, powerful return of Christ, how should I live? I should live first. If you're here this morning and you say, Pastor Tim, a lot of this is new to me, and actually this is kind of freaky to me, scary. Like, do you people really believe that? Yes. <laughs> and we believe you rose from the dead. Here's what I want you to know. The coming of Christ is staged. It has two stages. That's what the text says. Christ comes, verse 25. Jesus says, first, before that glorious day, what has to happen? There has to be a terrifying day. And the terrifying day is when the Son of Man, the Son of Man stands in your place, God in flesh, takes the consequences of your rebellion and bears it on his shoulders. Ascends back to the Father. There, I believe, he is coronated as the Son of God, Daniel 7. He comes. Now the Son of Man why? Because he was the son of God throughout history. He becomes the son of man in his incarnation at Christmas, as we think of it. And he ascends to the father as a victorious king. He comes and he takes his throne, Daniel 7 says, and one day he's coming. That's the trajectory of things. 
So this coming is staged. First, he comes to die. If you go to the end of Luke chapter 18, you'll see it again. Jesus says to the disciples, the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem. There he must be handed over to the Gentiles. He must be flogged, crucified, and die. On the third day, he will rise again. That's the first coming. This text leans us forward to the second coming while not forgetting the first coming that prepares us for the second coming. See, folks, Jesus is not coming for good people. He's coming for redeemed people. He's coming for people who have come to realize, you know what? I am a wretched, rebellious sinner who has been washed by the blood of Christ in his first coming, who has the hope of his presence forever in his second coming. That caused the psalmist to say this. I think it's Psalm 17 or 16, and the last verse. He says, in your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, pleasures that never end. Folks, do you understand that we settle for so much lesser things? For pleasures that end? And we cling to things that are temporary. And what is David saying? David is saying, you know what? In the midst of my pain and my injustice, which David had a ton of, What is David saying? I am longing. I'm one of them longing for the return of the Son of Man. Now, what do we do in the meantime? Just real quick, the last eight verses of this text. How do we live as we await his his return? And you find this really beautiful story of the lady who's a widow, who is experiencing the injustice of her culture towards widows. And that's just, what is Jesus doing? He's taking an illustration from his time of injustice And using it as a foil by which we can see our injustice and therefore cry out to God for help. So this lady is a widow. We don't know what her issue is. It's probably financial. She goes to a judge and she pesters him and pesters him and pesters him and pesters him. And what the text tells us about that judge is that he did not fear God and he did not care about man. Wouldn't you love to go before that guy? He didn't fear God and he could care less about you. You know what this woman does? She says, I will not stop until I get the justice I am longing for. And so she knocks and knocks and knocks and knocks and knocks and knocks and drives him crazy until she she finally breaks out of his hand the justice, the verdict that she's longing for. Now, why does Jesus tell the story? Jesus tells the story to use it as an argument from lesser to greater. Here's what he says. He says, if the unjust judge finally broke down and helped this uncared for widow in her culture, how much more will God yield to the prayers of his children who cry out to him day and night? Right? What are you crying for? I'm going to tell you what breaks your heart. What breaks your heart is injustice. What breaks your heart is when Eric Fine slays a state trooper and leaves a widow and two sons. What breaks your heart? It's what causes you to feel something that you don't normally feel until you pick up the newspaper or open the webpage and you see tragedy in the Middle East. Things that are beyond what you can imagine and they break your heart and you, in your heart, you may not know it, you are longing for the coming of the day of the Son of Man because you know when he comes, all that is wrong, all that is troubling would be, be made right. So what is this text saying? Verse 1 of chapter 18, Jesus says, Then Jesus told his disciples, a parable to show them that men should always pray and not give up. You know what my tendency is in the midst of hard times? 
my tendency is to shut down and give up. Why try? And what does Satan say to you? You can't make a difference. You know what Jesus says? Pray. Lay hold of the throne of heaven with the hope, with the knowledge that one day justice is coming. And that as you cry out to God, he is moved in your direction because you are his child who he loves and who he redeemed. And he calls you and he begs you, come, come. Respond to the grace of God that will change your life. So what I would say in application is something like this. If you're feeling mistreated, if you're seeking justice, go to God. Always according to this text, pray and talk to God. Always according to this text, verse 6, Jesus says, listen to what the unjust judge says and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. Not on your timetable. Okay, please understand that. Not on your timetable. But on God's. And then Jesus asks an interesting question. He says, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find the faith on the earth? What is he doing? He's, He's kind of playing with the question here for the Pharisees, for the disciples. When the Son of Man comes, will there be people who have clung to the throne of God in the midst of injustice, held on to their faith, and trusted God to be faithful to his promises as they await the coming of the Son of Man? Now, the text I want to read for you in conclusion is Daniel 7. Because the Pharisees are firing off of this question when they ask about the coming of the Son of Man. Here's what it says. This is the picture of Jesus. Daniel says, in my night vision, I looked. And there before me was one like a Son of Man. Listen to this next statement. He is coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days. And was led into his presence. He was given. And I believe this is probably post-resurrection. And ascension of Christ to his throne. Seated at the right hand of God. He was given authority. And glory. And sovereign power. Which is the term used for an exhaustive sense of control. And all people. Nations. Men from every language. Worshipped him. And then this statement. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom, one that will not be destroyed. Now, folks, that should so encourage our hearts in the midst of the struggle that we have one who is coming. And the kingdom he will establish will never end. It will never be infected with injustice because the one who rules it is a glorious king of kings. And Lord of Lords. In this text, Jesus aims to comfort us with this blessed hope, which should be the staggering truth that draws us to trust in Him or that comforts us in the midst of our struggles. And this text also aims to encourage a serious and sober Christian living in light of the return of Christ. It aims to grab hold of you and encourage you and solidify you and steal you to be the child of God that He desires. For you to be. When I was a child, I remember singing a song. It was, It Will Be Worth It All. 
It said this. It said it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till you see Christ. Folks, it takes bravery to not sit down on the bench of life. It takes bravery and a serious, sobering effort to reach for the finish line. When your whole body is crying out for justice. So in a broken world, maybe you're part of the picture that he paints in the days of Noah, in the days of Lot. You need to repent of your sin and come to a Savior who first came to rescue you from your sin. Second, comes to rescue you from all that is broken in this world and to lead you into his glorious kingdom wherein dwells righteousness. If you don't know him, I encourage you to trust him. If you know him, I encourage you this morning to cry out to him day and night until the day he comes. Let this truth of Christ's return encourage your hearts to know him and to love him. Would you pray with me?